The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Jeff Mills, and Bono and Eisen. Ahead on Fast, Apple doesn't want anyone taking bites out of their Apple. The tech giant aiming to become its own financial firm for its coming hardware subscription business and more. The fallout for fintech coming up, plus shares of RH getting crushed and dragging down names like Wayfair and Williams-Sonoma, the CEO's unvarnished take on the challenges ahead, and a reference to the big short rattling investors. And later, Intel CEO raking in over $178 million in its first 11 months on the job. Stock is down 17% since he started. Should investors be outraged by this massive payday? Or will time prove that he is worth the money? We start off with a struggling streamer. Shares of Netflix dropping more than 2.5% today. And with just one day left in the quarter, the stock is the second worst performer in the NASDAQ 100, just behind PayPal, down more than 36% this year. That puts Netflix on pace for its worst quarter in a decade. It has lost nearly $100 billion in market cap so far in 2022. It appears 27 Oscar noms haven't been enough to get the stock moving higher. So is it time to chill? on Netflix. Tim, you're in this one. I am. And I became a I went from a Netflix, a Netflix bear to a Netflix convert after those those Q1 guides were so bad. And we got the stock down below 380 and kind of nibbled at it there. And that's where I sit. And 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 the reasons I liked Emma, excuse me, Netflix then is is uh, part of it really was a valuation that at some point, if you if you screen on Internet stocks, uh, Netflix stands out along with Google. Uh, I talk about these peg ratios because it is what you're willing to pay for a company and the kind of growth they're giving you. Netflix, um, while the sub growth has not been linear and I, it never has been linear, Mel, and it's a case where I I actually think they're going to get those subgroup. I think they're going to get it Asia Pacific. I think they're going to get it in Latam. These are places that maybe aren't as sexy, um, but I think they, the, the valuation is very compelling here. I think if you look at the stock uh, relative to itself and just performance, first of all, back up to the 50 for the first time in four months. So the stock had been basing and consolidating and digesting a lot of bad news. Uh, I think it's really underperformed Disney. And, and I, I compare Netflix and Disney over five years, and there's been so many runs where one company has had to drive to outperform the other. And if you look at where Netflix and Disney are in this current run, there's been eight periods of, of plus or minus 40% or more moves against each other. Netflix has underperformed Disney by 43% uh, in the last you know three months or so. And I think this is an opportunity to actually put the other side of that trade on. I mean, just since the aforementioned first quarter results, when it gave that dismal outlook for subscriber growth for, for the March quarter, Jeff, I mean, it's lost 25% of its value. 25% of its value just since that print. So I guess the question is, have we discounted enough? Even if you think that the sub subscriber growth story isn't 
going to be fully there, but will be there in some way, shape or form. Is that enough? So I'm with Tim, and, and I think we have, and I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say I started talking about Netflix in the mid-400s, but uh, I definitely think it's interesting now, and I think stability around these levels in particular is interesting. It's really that pre-COVID ceiling that we saw, and if you look at the valuations, you're back to 2008 levels here, and yes, the, the growth profile going forward is a little bit different, but the growth certainly isn't over, to your point. And I think we're a long way from market saturation, especially if you're looking at the global market. They're still investing heavily in content. I don't think they would be doing that if they thought the growth opportunity had shifted. If you look at an EPS in 2023, I think you're talking about 30% growth there. So I think this is a very solid performer from these price levels. And as the market starts to rotate from value to growth, as I think it will, and actually as I think it's already starting to, I think you will see some re-rating in valuation multiples for stocks like this. I mean, in assessing its growth prospects, Bono, when you take a look at the total addressable market, right? J.P. Morgan goes out with this interesting note, taking a look at global broadband subscribers. So their potential market, right? Only 29% of those who are broadband subscribers globally are subscribers to Netflix, which implies that there is a lot of upside if they can further that penetration into those folks, those households that have broadband. Well, that's certainly the key. I would say that and, and gaming as well, which is also now a new area of competition, which they've already started to address. You know, I, I'm going to play from the contrarian standpoint a little bit. Mm. So, I mean, this really has become a game, be, being that the, the, the subgrowth has not been there or, or hasn't been consistent. This really now is about uh, content spin, which is going to drive margins lower. So they are in some way, shape or form backed up against the wall and are going to have to grow on, a, on an international scale. Now, with that said, that's the negative backdrop. I am in agreement with the other fellas in terms of from a valuation standpoint and from a technical standpoint, it's just about at that 50% uh, retracement level. It is starting to look a little compelling from the long side, but I, I think this is more a long-term growth story and whether or not they can, they can bring in-house and really address what is now a new addressable market, but uh, a, a, a real savvy competitor in terms of the gaming sector. Mm. What is that phrase that Carter Braxton Worth likes to use about charts that look terrible? So bad, it's good. And I'm not saying, I don't know what Carter's take is on the Netflix chart specifically, Karen, but it sounds like these guys are saying things look so bad, it looks good at this point. What do you think? Well, I, I, I agree with the, the, the more positive spin on it. I bought the stock. I've been waiting for a long, long time. And once it broke 400, uh, I bought it just below 400. It's obviously a little lower than that now. But I think there's sort of a lot to like about it. I saw some note today of comparing it about BlackBerry, which just seemed kind of, I don't quite get that. One's a hardware. This is completely different. So aside from growth, which I think is still there, they also do have pricing growth. We've seen them use that from time to time. We don't know when they'll use it again. But obviously, a price increase is a very, very good thing for the bottom line. The other thing is, Netflix themselves have not been very good predictors of their own next quarter, next couple of quarters. And so they gave this sort of very, you know, disappointing outlook. And I don't know if it was a sandbag or not, but I, I feel like, all right, this is really a premier player. It is the, obviously, the number one player. It's way far ahead of everyone else. And we haven't had a chance to buy it here for a long, long time. So could it go lower? Of course it could. But I think there's also a lumpiness to content hits. And, you know, I think they're putting a lot of money to it. They'll find some content hits, I'm sure. So uh, I'm, 
you know, this isn't cheap, but for this product, I don't think it's expensive. For this stock, rather, I don't think it's expensive. Yeah, I mean, there could be a drought in terms of new new content drops, and then you get Bridgerton season two, right? Right, can't, Tim? And then you get all sorts of stuff to binge all of a sudden on, on Netflix. I, I mean, I'm all about the squeaky games. But can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Have you ever shared your Netflix account, no. have you, your password, anything no. naughty like that? That would be I, wrong. Well, I, and so you've never done anything wrong, but I have, and a lot of people <laughs> have. Cowan did a very interesting survey, and they, they you know, basically out of 2,500 respondents, 43% are sharing a Netflix password in some way. I'm actually surprised it's not more. Yeah, and in that way, and I know what's going on in my family. I have brothers that I've never even met that are actually <laughs> logging into my password. And, and But those are subs that they can monetize. Those are subs that they're not getting credit for. But to how me, do they monetize that? Well, I, I think there's technology, and I'll let smarter people there figure that out. But when I look at some of the subs, and you talked about that addressable market, I think there's a market that they're already not getting credit for. So um, I, I also think that their content, while it's not always been the content that I want, again, this is a company that you know, over the last five years, this wasn't a content story before. And as much as I don't think it's it's Disney Studio, um, there are a lot of people that actually don't care at all about what Disney Studio and swear by Netflix and have for a long time. You know, Jeff, leave it to Karen to pick apart the metaphor, you know, black using black Blackberry is sort of the metaphor. I, I get the point about it being hardware. Netflix is not hardware. It's completely different. But in some ways, it's the same. I mean, I think it's this notion that Blackberry was the first mover right? Everybody had a BlackBerry. You couldn't imagine life without the BlackBerry. There were other things around, you know, but people still went to BlackBerry and RIM. Um, but here we are. Who has a BlackBerry now? Antique collectors. <laughs> That's who has Blackberries now. <laughs> so this notion that there's so many streaming services that could actually end up taking the crown like an Apple uh, TV. Yeah, I definitely had one of those. Wear it on the hip. It was a, it was a cool look right out of, uh, right out of undergrad. But Nobody yeah, I, did that. I, I hear what you're saying, but I, <laughs> I think there was a way to differentiate more with hardware, right? You look at the BlackBerry, and then you look at what Apple did with the iPhone. I mean, there was a major difference there in, in all sorts of ways, whereas really the differentiator here is content. And I'm not convinced that Netflix has all of a sudden forgotten how to produce hit content. I think ultimately, as we're saying, that's the differentiator. And yes, there's more competition, of course, but I still think Netflix definitely has the eyes of, of a lot of potential customers. The market is large. Uh, and to the point made earlier, they're going to find other hits with the content spend. So I'm not so worried uh, about that analogy sort of coming true in this case. Yeah. Should we be worried about that content spend, Karen, do you think? I mean, when you see an Apple, they've only been at it for a limited number of years. I can count them on one hand in terms of the content game. And they've won an Oscar. Right. Yes, they have. And Coda was a fantastic movie. I don't know if you saw it. It's great. But when you look at something like a Coda versus some other like Squid Game, which really was very, very lowbrow, relative to Coda, I would argue that Squid Game is a lot more valuable to shareholders than Coda would be to Apple. Oh, because it's, uh, it's, it takes more hours, more hours of engagement on the platform. It might get you to see other things, Bonwin. How do you view that content spend? And, and I mean, you say it's a big negative. They can do it, though. They've proven time and time again that they can access the capital markets and they can spend that money yeah. and compete. I mean, my argument is that if that is the, the sole differentiating factor, then I think it makes for a more, a more challenging pathway forward. That's really my point. I expect my mic to get cut as soon as I say this, but I, I, I don't think that winning, winning an Oscar or any other award necessarily 
uh, means that the, the quality is necessarily there or the economics are necessarily there. For instance, Leonardo DiCaprio didn't win one for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years. And, you know, people are going to have their opinions about that. But I don't necessarily think I find the correlation between winning an award and whether or not the, the content spin was worthwhile. I, 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 I think still think if you are the first. Go ahead, Tim. Go ahead, Bono. No, Bono, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, 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 you know, I do think that you know having the first mover advantage definitely is something that needs to be taken advantage of. They need to like be aware of what other entrants there are, new and existing, and then what other platforms are now kind of cannibalizing what what they already have existing. So if they're not able to address those things and it's purely just content, I do think that's somewhat problematic. Well, one of the things, and I hear that. I, I guess one of the things that I really like about Netflix story is you're talking about the addressable market, where they're going to grow are in areas where that broadband is growing, and and their ability to deliver localized content in places like India and Latin America. This is this is what I think Netflix does better than anybody. They recognize again their growth is not coming from U.S. and Canada. So you can is saturated. I think that's an issue. Uh, they're getting their growth globally. They're delivering content that's different than the content they're creating here. They've been successful at doing that. I think they will do that very well. Around the world. All right, let's get to the broader markets now. Stocks finishing in the red today. The Dow and the S&P snapping a four-day winning streak, and our next guest says a shift in market leadership is starting to play out. Let's bring in RBC's Lori Calvacina for her take. Lori, good to see you. Um, I feel like you are, I don't want to say a unicorn among strategists, but you're, you're pretty bullish on this market. So where, where are we? Have we seen the worst for 2022 at this point? So look, I think the, the low that we made back in back earlier this month, it's not April yet, um, it, it was very close to what we call growth scare pricing. So we saw a 13% drawdown peak to trough. If you go back to the post-financial crisis era, we've had a number of different episodes where the market was genuinely scared that we were going to tip into a recession or see the financial system unravel again, but it didn't happen. And those all totaled about a 14 to 20% peak to trough type drop. Those were episodes in 2010, 2011, 2015, 2016, and late 2018. So we came very, very close. Um, we have said that we can still see a path towards our target of 50-50 on the S&P 500 later this year. And as long as we can still see that path, we're not going to take our target down. Now, I do think that this leadership shift from value back to growth does help stabilize the market just because of the market cap composition. It's almost like bad news ends up being good news for the market in a way. Typically, when we see uh, GDP trending below average, the growth trade tends to beat the value trade. Value really only works in a hot economy when GDP is running above trend. Our own economist took his GDP forecast down from about 3.5% to 2.5%, which is telling me that we're moving back towards that tr uh, trend-like growth uh, backdrop in the economy very, very quickly. And we think that actually pushes people back into secular growth stocks, but does end up help see, helping to stabilize the market just a bit as well. Um, on the path to 50-50, Lori, I mean, where does a consumer stand in terms of how the consumer fights inflation? I mean, how much of that is a, I don't know, a headwind um, for this for this target? It's a headwind, but I think we have to keep in mind with the consumer that we are battling a number of headwinds, whether it's the sentiment issues out there, higher interest rates, um, gas prices are, have obviously been in focus lately, but we're coming at it from a position of strength. The consumer balance sheets have been very, very uh, in much better shape than what we've seen in past episodes where the consumer has been weak when confronting some of these headwinds. I think we have to keep in mind that the consumer resilience has been questioned a number of times times in recent years, the consumer continues to be underestimated and comes back and surprises to the upside. 
So we think it's very tough to bet against the consumer at this point in time. The way I think the market is treating the consumer right now and the economy and their question of recession more broadly is innocent until proven guilty. And I keep telling people we're very lucky that we have this whole arsenal of high frequency economic indicators that we use during COVID to keep an eye on. And so far, we're still seeing remarkable stability in things like dining and flying. We are seeing some good spending pair back, um, but we are seeing the services side pick up. So, so far, we are seeing underlying signs of resilience. Hey, Lori, it's Tim. Uh, we're not seeing remarkable stability in the bond market. And, and are you concerned? I mean, this first quarter will have been you know, proven to be the, the, the worst quarter for bonds in history. And we just haven't had this start to a year. We haven't had this type of a down move uh, for fixed income and aggregate. And, and that concerns me. Where do you fall in line on that? I, I definitely would put it higher on the list of things that I'm concerned about. And, you know, just kind of broadening out in the fixed income discussion, looking at mortgage rates, I would say that concerns me a little bit more than what I'm seeing on gas prices recently. I think that these are all important risks to monitor. And, you know, someone asked me a few weeks ago, Tim, are you pounding the table on the market, Lori? And I said, not by any stretch. We still see a path. We're very careful with that language. And I always go back to sentiment. The sentiment indicators have just absolutely taken a beating. So a lot of these concerns that you and I have, whether it's the bond market, gas prices, mortgage rates, a lot of that is baked in already. And if you look at the AAII net bull bear indicator, a few weeks ago, it got down to levels that were worse than pandemic type lows. So again, I think these are important risks to monitor, but I also think we have to take into account that a lot of this pain, a lot of this nastiness that we feel when looking at some of these indicators has already been baked in. Lori, always great to get your thoughts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Lori Calvacina of RBC. Karen, do you think that, that everything's been baked in? Uh, that's a great question. Something we haven't heard of is probably not baked in, but I think that the market is sort of digesting uh, the Ukraine situation somewhat. I think that we, we sort of decided, all right, we're in this for a while now. Um, and, you know, if Guy were here, he would say, you know, Melms never bet against the American consumer and they're employed at record numbers and wages are higher. So I think, you know, betting with the American consumer consumer is a good way to go. Yeah. But the American consumer has been weathering price increases already on various products. And the question is, are they going to be OK if that package of whatever they're buying, let's say Doritos, I don't know, I don't want to pick out Doritos, anything they're buying gets smaller at the same price, or if that price that per bag gets ex more expensive, Bonoin, I mean, at some point, even if the consumer has savings, they're like, what is going on here? Yeah, you had me at Doritos, Mel. Um, <laughs> You know, we talk about um, consumer sentiment and consumer trends, um, and, and some of those have changed, right? You, you have an elevated number of consumers that are no longer in the workforce, no longer making themselves uh, eligible. And that you can argue because of uh, federal help or because of skills that they've learned or independent contract status, things of that nature. And we also talk about the savings rate. I, I think that one thing that is being underestimated is that there are differences in how the consumer is postured. Robinhood et al. have made access to public markets more available than ever, and that coupled with the higher savings rate and uh, addition into home ownership, I think postures the consumer slightly differently. The move over to services also means that you're not tapping into credit markets, interest rates, and all those other dynamics that are part of the financial system to make your purchases. And I do think that also has some trickle-down effect. Uh, the last thing that I'll say in terms of like a, a bit of disparity between indicators and things that I don't think are necessarily being taken into consideration, if you look at the VIX or just 
the cost of protection or insurance within the market, that's trading back down towards cyclical lows, which although a lot of these other indicators might uh, point to bearish posturing, I think this says that there is a bit of lax laxness in, in the market. And so I think that those two things don't reconcile for me. It's an interesting point about posturing and, and how the consumer the consumer probably feels wealthier these days. Um, coming up, furniture fallout, home goods stocks under pressure as consumer demand drops. So how should you trade these names? The details ahead. But first, an apple a day keeps the banks away. The tech titan reportedly working on bringing financial services in-house. The details are next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple banking on itself. According to reports, the tech giant is working to bring more financial services in-house, including payment processing, risk assessment for lending, fraud analysis, credit checks, and additional customer service functions. Check out shares of Goldman Sachs and Green Dot, two of Apple's existing financial partners, both getting chomped. That was, Ooh, the, that was I, in the prompt. I, I, that's I got not that. Word. Yeah, no, um, that's, in today's that's trade, terrible. but you get it, um, they were lower on this news. <laughs> Karen, I feel like it's not surprising that Apple wants to do this. Um, does this mean that they become effectively a bank? Well, I don't. That's a good question. Being a bank is a hard thing to become. Not that they couldn't, but uh, but um, I'm not. I'm sort of confused because I could understand them wanting to, you know, have a white label product that they buy from somebody else. I don't quite understand them wanting to build out all the infrastructure to do this kind of thing. That. That sort of doesn't make sense to me. I get that they want to capture wallet share. Like they're doing that with Apple Pay. We talked about the other night whether you're going to be able to buy your phone, you know, monthly subscription and then being able to finance that, buy now, pay later, all those kind of things. I'm not quite sure I get the doing it themselves. Kind of also when we talked about the car, however many months ago that was, the idea of them doing that themselves as opposed to just the, the guts of it. Um, I, I don't know. It, to me, it doesn't, at this point, it doesn't change the Apple story. Well, the question is, does it change the Apple multiple? And, and, and you know, banking is not a terribly sexy multiple unless you're a fintech bank. And, and we've seen, uh, you know, there's, there's actually a great divide there in terms yeah. of really who is who and who deserves what. You could probably pull fintech down. Um, maybe you can pull JP Morgan up. But I think with Apple, this is about reducing reliance on other service providers and becoming more vertically integrated. And, and it's something that we've seen Amazon do. We've seen they, they can push around suppliers. They can push around these folks. So that's what's interesting to me because I think Apple's actually 
actually in a position to do it. Where, you know, you get into credit checks and buy now, pay later, that totally supports a hardware business. And hardware is a service to be able to assess right on the spot. That makes sense to me. Although, again, I, you know, I don't believe they should be building this in-house. Um, and, and I ultimately don't think Apple's greatest beneficiary in the last couple of years was the software model. That was the multiple enhancement. Uh, this doesn't enhance the multiple to me. Yeah. How about you, Jeff, on the multiple? Good or bad for the multiple if they did this? Yeah, I, I sort of agree with Tim. I mean, I think this is this is complicated. It's going to take time to build out, and, and it's unclear what this does in terms of profitability of the company. Uh, so I think time will tell. This is sort of a long time horizon sort of project, so we'll see how it plays out. I, I do think it's interesting for some of these other companies, like a Green Dot, for example. So this is a stock that's gotten hit pretty hard over the past couple of months. Um, you know, as you alluded to, this is nothing new kind of saw this coming relative to, to Apple wanting to do some of these things. But a green dot, trading at 11 times, I think some of these struggles are baked in and they have other large partners. And I still think this banking as a service model is kind of interesting. Karen alluded to this, but building the infrastructure yourself, you know, it's, it's a heavy lift. So, you know, I have no idea to question, but does a company like Green Dot become an acquisition target for a larger company who wants to do something like this, but doesn't want to build it themselves. It seems like potentially a call option on certain companies like this that are trading at pretty low multiples right now. All right, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Shaky Foundation, the stark warning from One Home Good CEO that suggests there's a lot more pain to come for the housing trade. We've got an open house in that sector next. Plus, cannabis crunch time. Lawmakers weighing legalization. So what's in store for pot stocks? We're rolling into that one next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you are already worried about the housing trade because of, say, rising rates, the CEO of RH is signaling there may be even more pain ahead. Gary Friedman telling investors on last night's earnings call, we have experienced softening demand in the first quarter that coincided with Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February and the market volatility that followed. Friedman at one point compared the macro picture to the collapse of Bear Stearns, suggesting we still don't understand how big an impact inflation and supply chains are going to have. He said predicting right now is as hard to predict as it was back in 2008. These are words that investors do not want to hear, Karen. So I think the question is, Mm. is this sort of a canary in the coal mine or are they just kitchen sinking, giving the most conservative sandbag kind of guide? 
That is a great question, because the first part of the call was sort of this soaring rhetoric about what RH can be and, you know, scaling, taste doesn't scale, or you have to scale taste, or whatever they're saying is, and about all the things they're doing, the RH jet and the RH yacht and the RH uh, architecture firm, the RH housing. They're talking about having RH houses that they build and furnish. So those two things are slightly, not slightly, very much in uh, opposition to one another. All that having been said, though, it's interesting to me, just like a Zoom or a DocuSign, RH is close to, not quite, but close to entirely losing all of their pandemic stock boom and now bust. And the valuation is actually starting to get interesting to me. You try to, you know, in, invoke the three-day rule. So we're only at day one, and I'm not very good at the rules. So I don't know if it goes down tomorrow, I might look to start buying there. I don't know that the, the end of RH is in sight. Maybe they could scale back some of the, um, their ambitions, but um, I, think it's, I think that clearly higher rates are gonna be hard for the housing trade, but I don't necessarily think it's the end for RH at all. We haven't had, yeah. seen a valuation like this in two years. I mean, the higher, the higher rates, um, the supply chain aspect, and we talked about the, the cost of ocean shipping has, more than has doubled and then went up just recently again. Um, and so that's going up. So the costs are going up. And then there's that pull forward effect too, Bonwin, that a lot of these other stocks had, had seen, like the DocuSign that, that Karen had, had referenced. I mean, if you bought a bureau in a floor lamp, you're not going to buy another one. <laughs> Tim's not going to buy another, another one <laughs> anytime soon. He bought it already. <laughs> Uh, well, he's got a lot of clothes, and those sweaters need space. Um, <laughs> <My man. laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, Karen. Karen makes a great point in terms of the pull forward, and I think there is a large part of that there, and and there's no argument there. I'm in lockstep with her. I will say, as far as the consumer is concerned, I would argue that the consumer that they that they appeal to probably has the most disposable income vis-a-vis, -vis, say, a Home Depot or Target or Lowe's or any other type of, I guess Target doesn't really uh, belong there, but, but any other type of uh, uh, general home improvement type of, uh, type of center. So I think, yeah, the, those, those headwinds are going to be there for everyone. The inflation uh, story, if they were trying to scare investors, I think they did a good job, it would, which makes me think maybe they are kind of kitchen seeking it. Um, I will probably stick to Karen's three-day rule and wait and see how this thing trades and see if it kind of starts to find a technical level. But I think the thing that they have going for them is that they do appeal to that higher-end higher consumer, which is going to have more disposable income, favorable loan terms, things of that nature. And so the interest rate story doesn't hit them uh, one for one the same way it would hit uh, uh, someone else. All right. Well, while the home trade suffers, it appears that investors are buying in bulk. Take a look at Costco, the stock hitting an all-time high, dating back to its 1985 IPO. Jeff, I know you've got bulk toilet paper and everything under the sun in your home. I just have a feeling. Stocked up. The basement stocked. Uh, listen, this is it's a simple story for me here. It's a breakout candidate. Like you said, it's a great business. It's just way too expensive. It, it, 42 times seems a little ridiculous for this stock at this point. I think the average multiple is something like 26 times. But I just I can't pay that kind of multiple for Costco's margin profile, growth profile. So great company. Uh, buy it on pullbacks, but too expensive for me here. It is amazing that its forward P.E. is higher than Apple or Netflix. 
Tim. Yeah, it, it is. And I, I do think while some of the core parts of their business are places where food inflation and goods inflation and staples inflation is actually good uh, for them. It's very good for Walmart, too. And I, I just like that that story better. I, I look at, you know, I look at the chart and I say um, around 575, you're you're you know, you're either breaking out here. Or I think you're breaking down and, and the valuation is significant. So um, I, I, like I've been wrong on Walmart in that the stock has not outperformed. It's 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 drastically underperformed target wickedly underperformed Costco. And I think it's time. I, I, I just think their, their e-commerce initiatives, I think what they've been able to do during COVID and where they have mm-hmm. figured out curbside, uh, but more importantly, they're starting to get past food and some of these uh, staples items. And I, I just think the valuation is very compelling. I mean, the, they have got the membership revenue, which they could probably right. increase in price, right? Just like an Amazon. Um, and then if things cost more, Karen, don't you want to save by buying in bulk? Well, if you ask my husband, you always want to buy in bulk no matter what all the time. And I think the pandemic has taught people, all right, it's okay to buy in bulk. It's an extraordinary company. I, I've been hung up on the multiple, too. They just, they're, they, they're great. I, you know, their labor costs are high and their labor force is really good. And that's sort of an interesting lesson maybe for some other retailers. But it's just been too expensive for me. I do like Target. I do like Walmart. Walmart also getting near, near not quite, the yep. high. And it's 21 times, but Target at 14, 15 times, I like a lot. All right. Coming up, pot stocks in focus as lawmakers weigh a legalization bill. So what are the chances of it passing? We are breaking it down with TrueLeaf CEO Kim Rivers, a company posting record revenue. She joins us next to dig into the quarter, plus the big payday that's got everybody talking. The chip-making chief taking nearly $180 million. Hmm. The details when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of cannabis company TrueLeaf shares uh, failing to hold on to gains after reporting quarterly results this morning. It posted an 81% jump in revenue, but didn't turn a profit its first loss in 16 quarters. Kim Rivers is the CEO of TrueLeaf. Kim, it's great to speak with you again. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to talk about profits and specifically about margins. Um, it was an interesting quarter in that you had the holidays, so there was holiday promotions. You had a different geographic mix because of Harvest, the acquisition there, and the geographic mix that changed things a little bit. So can you talk us through about where you see margins going forward and if the margin picture is going to improve in the industry? What is going to make that improve? Yeah, so uh, first, it's important to note that this quarter was our integration you know, hit. Uh, we closed the largest uh, cannabis deal in U.S. history uh, in October. So we did have uh, significant one-time non-recurring charges that flowed through financials this quarter. If you adjust those out, our margin profile was extremely, you know, I think, you know, robust at 59%. Um, we did guide to uh, stability you know, margins over the next two to three years of uh, 60% on, on gross margin side and 40% on the EBITDA side, we see significant um, margin um, upside as the year as the year um, you know moves forward as we uh, execute on our strategic initiatives, which primarily centers around uh, more supply chain capacity and pushing more branded product through branded retail across, as you mentioned, our uh, vastly expanded uh, network of 11 markets across the U.S. 
Hey, Kim, it's Tim. Great execution hey. and, and exciting numbers. And I, yeah, you're pointing out that the second half of the year really is probably the more exciting time for the outlook. But I would point to the excitement of today just around uh, the sale of a New York license to Scott's Miracle Grow Hawthorne folks. Um, the East Coast is alive and well. You are everywhere. Um, when do you make a splash in, in either this state, which has limited license access right now, or what's your next target market? Where do you want to be? Uh, or is it about focusing on the market you're in? Because you you're certainly have a big footprint now. Yeah, it's, it's certainly about optimizing our existing platform. Um, we, we absolutely need to realize the, the full value of the transaction that we just completed, uh, which we plan to do um, throughout this year, uh, and to build on right the record year that we just had with 80% revenue growth year over year on top of 105% revenue growth uh, the previous year. Uh, so we, we've got some big shoes to fill there. Um, but to your point, Tim, we remain inquisitive. We had, had announced our regional hub strategy, so we've got lots of areas that we can grow. We're very bullish on the Southeast. There's a number of markets that are going to be turning on in the Southeast, um, maybe not as uh, headline friendly, if you will, as some of the others. But look, I mean, we're still inquisitive and we'll remain inquisitive in the Northeast as well. We have a significant presence in Pennsylvania. We're poised for uh, to take advantage of uh, Maryland market going recreational. Um, there's going to be a ballot initiative there that later this year. Uh, Connecticut, we have a presence. So certainly keeping our eye um, on, on New York and also New Jersey, but you know, also want to be good stewards of capital and, and make sure that we're entering the way that um, is prudent for our shareholders. The MORE Act, we have to ask you about that, Kim. What's, what's your take on whether it passes fully? Uh, so I, I think it definitely passes the House. I don't think we see any movement on the Senate until uh, you know uh, Senator Schumer and Booker's bill has a chance to be heard, which I believe will happen sometime in April. And then after that, um, I think it's uh, it's anyone's guess, although it's time for the rubber to meet the road as we're in the face of midterms. So I do think that the heat will um, continue to rise. And hopefully um, Congress will do what they say that they were going to do, which is to pass some sort of substantive policy reform before midterm elections. Kim, always great to see you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Kim Rivers of TrueLeave. Uh, Bono, and where are you on the, on the pot trade? Uh, I like it. Um, and honestly, I rely heavily on uh, my man, Tim, uh, investing through his uh, ETF. I think, generally speaking, in terms of um, in, in terms of the overall space, it's really going to be a question about margin. And you're starting to see, we see the Cresco Labs deal as well. It's really about vertical in integration and penetrating into those retail outlets. And I think uh, you're going to con see, uh, see continued consolidation within the space, but I'm bullish. I, I'm a firm believer in the overall secular trend. What was interesting about the news last week was not so much that the more, uh, you know, legislation was expected to come through and pass, and it will, and it'll be the sixth time that the House has passed federalization. So it's really, as Kim said, all about the Senate. But I was impressed that the Senate unanimously passed a bill to do research on the plant. And, and I think it, it provides a, a branch in, for, or whatever that expression is, coming in off the edge of the... It, it will give many senators the ability to actually uh, get more positive on cannabis. And I do think researching the plant is a big part and understanding the plant of changing some of the perception out there. So cannabis stocks... It, Having another one of those runs where after a very difficult nine to 12 months, um, I think you've reset expectations on margins. I think this is the story that you rightly asked about, Mel. And, and I do think the expectations on federal are not there. And therefore, I think this is a, a pretty interesting time. Coming up, semi-salary. Intel CEO making bank in his first year on the job. And the big payday is turning a lot of heads. We've got the details next. Plus, some huge swings in oil over the past month. And that's got some options traders betting on a big pump higher. We'll tell you how they're playing it when Fast Money returns.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Call it the $178 million question. That is how much money Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger raked in last year. The exec who took the reins in February of 2021, earning 1,700 times more than his average employee. That even as Intel shares have fallen nearly 17% under his watch. The S&P is up 17% in that same period. Karen, what's your take? Yeah, well, that's a headline number that I don't know if that's actually going to be compensation. And if you look in the, um, I don't remember, is the proxy what document, if you look under the, I'm not kidding, thoughtful transition section, new higher compensation, it breaks down a lot of the pieces, one of which includes a $50 million payment because that's what he was forfeiting by leaving. So I sort of think, all right, that sort of should come out of the headline. And then it talks about some of the um, awards. They have to triple the stock. Some of them, they have to double the stock. So it's not the full amount, right? So it's, it's a little misleading, but they are choosing just stock price as the, as the metric. Sometimes you see companies that choose profitability or cash flow or revenue, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. But here, they're just choosing stock price. They have a little reason why that is. And then some of the compensation is also tied to how do they do relative to competitors in the space, which I always think is a good metric to look at. So we don't know yet if he's worth it. Sometimes you have these absolutely seemingly ridiculous pay packages like you would see for an athlete or something, and they're worth it. And I remember, Mel, when we were at that crazy show in Miami, I don't know how many years ago, and you did a fantastic interview with Martine Rothblatt who made an extraordinary amount of money and mm-hmm. I think was worth it. So we don't know yet if he's worth it, but it is possible that he is. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good point, Jeff, that Karen is making. I mean, it's, what, a million-dollar base salary. He gets $50 million for leaving VMware to go to Intel, and then all the rest is up in the air. We don't know if he'll ever get that because we don't know if the stock price is going to meet, meet the metrics. Seems fair. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I think Karen's right. Sometimes those headline numbers can be misleading. I will say one thing, and maybe this is only around the margins, and I think it depends on, you know, the momentum of ESG investing. But I know for our clients who are interested in ESG investing, one of the things that we look at is CEO to median worker pay. So you you get enough people focused on that. Maybe it falls out some of these ESG strategies or indexes. Maybe at the margin, something like that could be a headwind for the stock. I'm not particularly focused on it, but I think it's at least noteworthy enough to mention. The one thing I do like about the company, and it's clearly a longer-term catalyst, but I think you know, any whiff of geopolitical issues in Taiwan, with Taiwan Semi or Korea, with Samsung, that's going to end up benefiting the company's outsource fab plans. I think you know, chip makers then are forced to dual source. I think you see governments uh, potentially subsidizing the cost of building out those fabs. So I, I do think that's interesting. Like I said, that's a slow-moving thesis. Near term, I do think it's also interesting that the stock bounced off of 45, kind of the low end of that four-year range. But maybe for now it's cheap for a reason, but there are reasons to be optimistic longer term. Yeah, reshoring could be a a longer-term tailwind for this company, Bonowin, certainly. It certainly could, and I think that's the upside in the company. As far as the CEO pay is concerned, I'm with the others in terms of the headline number may not necessarily be the real number, but I don't think it should be tied to share price. Buybacks and other things, financial engineering can lead to that. It really needs to be tied around uh, shareholder value uh, uh, and and, uh, profitability. 
Coming up, crude climb, energy making some big moves lately, and that's got one options traders betting on a big move in one name. The details ahead when Fast Money comes right back. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking to the CEO of natural gas company, Tellurian. Catch the full exclusive interview, top of the hour, on Mad Money. And speaking of energy, the latest Delivering Alpha investor survey hitting the topic of higher oil prices head on. One of the questions we asked was where oil would finish the year. Half of respondents said crude would finish 2022 under 100 bucks a barrel. You can get more insights from top investors in the Delivering Alpha newsletter. And to subscribe, just use your phone to hit the QR code on your screen. There it is right now. All right. Meantime, at least one trader in the options market thinks there is plenty more room for the energy trade to run. Tony Zhang has the action. Tony. Yeah, that's exactly right. Plenty of room in Diamondback Energy, uh, which normally trades fairly actively. Over 8,000 contracts traded, but today more than double that traded and more than half the volume was in a single trade where a trader sold about 4,000 contracts of the April 130 calls. This is a roll where they sold the 130 calls to buy over 3,000 contracts of the May 150 calls for about six and a half bucks, and then bought another 4,500 contracts of the May 155 calls for about five and a half bucks. So just to understand that this is a trader that likely is taking some profits on the April 130 calls that they owned and extending this trade further out in time into May and effectively renewing a bullish trade here in Diamondback Energy, expecting that this stock can be as high as above $160 by that May expiration. I mean, even if oil goes below 100 and finishes the year under 100, Tim, there's still a lot of room for oil companies to make money. Yeah, and, and I'm not in that camp. And, and we talked about last week how companies like Hess have actually paid a fair amount of money, $325 million, to take off their upside uh, hedges and the collars that they put on. And, and I, you know, OPEC Plus meets tomorrow. Uh, they're, they're probably going to ratify this 400000 uh, barrel uh, production increase just because it's it's out there in the books and I think they have to do this but um, what we're hearing from OPEC and OPEC plus is that actually first quarter surplus is much less than expected uh, demand side is also stronger than expected Tony thanks for more options action be sure to tune into the full show that is Friday 5 30 p.m. Eastern time up next final trades time for the final trade Bono and Eisen one of the largest institutional owners of single-family rentals, BX, Blackstone. Jeff Mills. Lulu, this is one I've called out a couple of times over recent months. Uh, I think this one's about to make a new high here. Great follow-through after earnings. It held a key technical level, so Lulu. Karen Feinerman. Yes, Bank of America. I like its US, U.S. centricity, its asset sensitivity, and the bar is lower going into bank earnings in two weeks. Tim Seymour. Well, I know you love Home Depot. So do I, my favorite store. I think Home Depot at 270, you wave it in, but you nibble some here. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? 
AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 